Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have with us Paul Vesolsky, an M&A advisor with multiple offices in the northeastern U.S. Paul comes to us with a background in electrical engineering as well as some experience in multiple startups, even taking some of these companies public. And he did this all prior to stepping into the M&A world. Paul begins our interview with a transaction where he talks to an entrepreneur who had decided to sell his business and when he was literally at the closing table, backed out. Now, he did this not only once, but twice. You'll be interested to find out why. Next, Paul shares a transaction where three partners with equal ownership in a business that they ran for decades had different goals and objectives, which caused an extended five-year process of getting the business sold. If you have partners in your business, this is an episode that may have some insights that you may wish to take note of. We often hear of stories of immigrants that come to this country with nothing and build a successful business. Paul shares such a story of Russian immigrants that immigrated to the eastern part of the U.S. and did just this. They started a business, not only once, but twice, and how one of their businesses became a lot more successful than the other. Paul goes on to share how these immigrants decided to sell the first business they had started to focus on one that turned out to be a lot more profitable. Sometimes focus is the key to ultimate success. I'd like to have you listen to how this transaction of selling their first business turned out and some of the takeaways for this. I think you'll find it interesting. Finally, Paul shares a story of an entrepreneur that started a business in college and worked with it over decades and how a diagnosis of cancer changed everything. Learn how this entrepreneur approached his business exit and how he did this provides some real insight to what you may wish to learn from because there are some real takeaways for every entrepreneur because we all need to have this type of understanding that things can change in an instant and if they do, what you need to do about it. This is Marvin L. Storm. We're here with Paul Vasilski. Paul, would you take a few minutes and introduce yourself to our audience and talk a little bit about where you're located and a little bit about what you do? Thank you, Marvin. I am the president and founder of Stony Hill Advisors. Our main office is in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but we have grown to include offices in Pittsburgh, Dayton, Ohio, Westchester County, New York, and Stamford, Connecticut. I'm, I'm now operating out of Stamford and I'm I'm personally trying to grow the business into the New England territory. I've been on this 11 years now. All right. Well, you obviously operate across multiple states there, which provides a little bit different perspective to our audience here and the type of businesses we're going to talk a little bit about today cover a pretty broad range of lower mid-cap businesses uh, in the mid-market, as well as some fairly good-sized transactions here. So 
As we get started here, I'd like to just have you talk a little bit about a transaction that you have been involved in, maybe currently going on that had its challenges, maybe closed, maybe did not. And why don't we dive in and have you give us some of the details and why don't we get started and talk a little bit about the type of company that we're going to be chatting about here today and who the entrepreneur founder was. Yes. um, The first company I'd like to talk about ended up in a bit of a disappointment. Uh, a gentleman who I actually knew from my prior life. I was uh, in the mortgage industry, and this individual had a title insurance company. And uh, he reached a stage. We had some uh, concerns about his health, and uh, he was getting older. And so he decided to sell the company. So, he so contacted how, long, me and- how long had he had been in the business? Uh- you know, more mortgage business, I guess, is a personal relationship type of business. Why don't you talk a little bit about how the business operated and uh, how the owner was so so intricately involved in the business? Um, yes, the, he had been doing it approximately thirty years. He started from scratch, and um, he represented insurance companies. So, what his role was as the primary interface to the mortgage companies who were providing the uh, actual the banks and mortgage companies provided the loan to homeowners and businesses. Um, so he had all the relationships with the people who would call him to issue the particular insurance coverages. Um, so he, he built a business around his relationships he created over these many years. And he used the company for a lot of entertaining Tickets to um, all the major uh, sports entities in the Philadelphia area. Dinners with clients. So did he take his clients out to Eagles games, football games, and the 76ers yeah. basketball games? That's what he did? That was that was part of his entertainment. He had his own plane. He was a flyer. He, flew with, he was a pilot. And he would take people places just for uh, the, the relationship that he would build by taking them, not thousands of miles, but a couple hundred miles if they wanted to go play golf, let's call it. He was the business. He was the relationship builder. Well, sounds like he had a lot of fun operating the business. Yes, he he seemed to. And uh, so if I continue, he, he asked me to see if I could find a buyer for him because he, he thought it's a good time to get out. So he was, he said, close to 60 plus or 70? Um, I would, I, you know, I don't actually know the exact ages of people, but I my guess he was mid-60s. And uh, so I found him a buyer I, uh, because I was previously in the industry as well. I knew enough people. I used my relationships to find uh, an individual who uh, was buying up various uh, local title companies because these companies are small. This guy's office had six people. Most of the the title companies you find there's usually multiple around a, a major market. They all have five, ten people, not many more. So they're tiny businesses. And to to grow, you you can acquire them. Uh, either leave let them keep their original name or change it to a company corporate name. But uh, this guy was trying to grow. So he was actually trying to enter into the Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area. Was he located in the region or was he someplace else? Yeah, out of Florida. He was down in Florida, okay. And uh, he was looking to grow uh, in the Philadelphia area. He had already acquired one uh, mortgage company. And uh, that led me to uh, connect to him, in fact. So then I brought him into the conversation and he was interested. And we went through the motions for a number of months. I'm going to remember about six months. Uh, where we got an offer, he, uh, we went through the contract process, attorneys involved, everything everything was done, but the signature on the bottom line. Uh, and then my client, uh, a week before the closing was scheduled, uh, by cold feet, called me and said, I can't sell the business. I can't imagine 
what I would be doing the day after. Let me get some context here. So you've gone through six months of negotiations and due diligence and all the documents have been drafted, purchase agreements, everything had been signed off on. You're waiting for the closing and he calls up and says, I can't imagine what I would do if I sold my business. Exactly. Wow. Well, I guess coming back to our earlier discussion when he was talking about the lifestyle he was living, flying planes with clients and going to sporting events and what he did on a day-to-day basis to nurture those relationships, that was kind of who he was, it sounds like. Exactly. So we took him off the market because he he decided he wasn't going to sell. That one had to be around January. And by the next uh, fall, September, he calls me again and said, I think I'm ready now. <laughs> so what had changed? Did anything change or you just felt that now maybe I should sell? He said this, he was still concerned about his health. So he had some health issues. Had this come up before or was this part of the original story? Well, it was more of a scare. He thought he had a heart attack on it when he was working out at the gym. And it turned out that it was something else. He didn't really have a, a serious heart attack, but he's he's at an age. He's, he's like, something's going to happen to me. I, you know, we all start worrying about when when is the last day. So he just decided maybe I should really think about getting out. So I actually engaged again. I went back to the original buyer, thinking that I would be turned down because he would, you know, you're not fool me once on me, fool you twice on you. So he agreed and he came into the picture. We started all over again. Updated the uh, financials. Uh, my my client, the seller, had had decent. A year since the last time we talked to this guy. So he made a better offer. We went through the process again, got the attorneys involved, and then my client backed out once more. <laughs> Was this right up to closing again? Uh, it wasn't quite to the end, but we were, we were getting near it. Uh, it, was, it was embarrassing to have me go back to the buyer and say, he changed his mind again. So uh, I, I prevailed on my client to uh, uh, that he owed me because I'd spent, it was almost two years in, in total work to get to this stage and had two offers that he walked away from. So he gave me a, a, a small commission payment. Well, that is, uh, the, I think this is about the first. I can't think of another podcast interview and story that we've had where you've been to the table twice. So I'm just dying to know, have you kept tabs on the business and the entrepreneur that's involved here? Is he still running the business? Did he finally sell it? What happened? Um, as I mentioned, I had some connections in the, in the mortgage world. So it, what I've heard secondhand, I haven't been in touch with him personally. He is still operating that business. Now that goes back five years. So he's, he's still at it. Uh, I think they'll find him uh, in his office one day and then they'll have to close. And one of the things that uh, I always try to make everybody aware of business owners when they're get, getting a, a little bit long in, in, uh, in their years, um, if you stretch yourself to the point where you cannot make it and you, you pass out at your desk or whatever, your employees then have nothing to do. They're, they're out of work and they don't easily find another job if they're in the same age group as you. So it's, it's not fair to your employees to be of that mindset, but they, that's, you just can't make, you can't get there. You just, you're, you're, you're locked in. So it sounds like from your description of the personality profile of this uh, entrepreneur that we're discussing here is that, as you said, he's probably going to die in his office chair one of these days. Something major is going to have to change before he'll feel comfortable of stepping away from the business and maybe the business won't be 
worth it, as you said. And I think for those listening in today that are entrepreneurs that are key to the success of their business, something happens to you. You've had people that have dedicated years and decades and maybe longer helping you build your business. You kind of owe it to them to do a little foreplanning. So in this situation, what would you say, Paul, is the big takeaway for our listeners here today? Well, it's a difficult process of making a business independent of you. And and therefore, you really have to prepare yourself as well as the, making the business ready for exit. We, we talk to business owners about uh, reducing risk and, and making it easy for the next owner to come in and run it. And you give them the, the, you know, the steering wheel to run the business. But you also have to think about, are you ready? Can you ever step away? And if you don't, if you can't do that, then all the other preparation doesn't mean anything. So that's a good soundbite, I think, a good phrase that if you're ready to exit, make sure that you are ready to exit, not only your business. Make sure that you are ready to sell versus just having your business ready to sell. We spend a lot of time on the podcast here talking about getting your business ready to sell. And we haven't spent all that much time talking about getting yourself ready to sell. And that is more of an emotional thing. And and by the way, it's much more than playing golf and going to a trip to Europe for a month. Well, that's all true. It's, 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 you really have to have an idea of what you want to do the rest of your life, of your product, productive life. Yeah. I think that's something that for all those that are listening in here, ask yourself, what's next? And what can you see yourself doing? You shared with me earlier, we were discussing that, you know, psychologists say that selling a business is very similar in emotional trauma and anxiety that's created as a death in the family. And especially for those entrepreneurs where it's truly, they're really integral to the business and they've dedicated decades and maybe their entire life growing the business, that uh, transition out of it, either orderly or not so orderly, is a huge emotional shock and can accompany that. Uh, we didn't mention this, but there's an interesting dynamic I've, I've seen where uh, business owners, their their children don't want to be in that same position and they often and, and, and this generation at least, shy away from getting involved in the business to that degree. They don't want to be trapped. And it's, it's a mental trap, like their father or the, their mother or whatever. Yeah. Well, that's uh, great. Yeah. Two times to the well and still at the well, I guess. That's a great story. So thanks for sharing that, Paul. So let's chat about another transaction that had its challenges and a little bit about how that unfolded. And tell me a little bit about the entrepreneurs that started or bought this business. Yes, um, this one is a, a long story. Um, it goes back five years when I began, and it's still going on. So just for clarification, you started this process five years ago, and it's still in process, and it's not been sold yet? Correct. Okay, well, let's find out about this. So we're close. We're see, we see light at the end of the tunnel. But the owners, the three three individuals, it's a construction company, uh, and, and they serve primarily in New York City market, an area where there's lots of regulations and uh very expensive insurance coverages. When you talk about being highly regulated and a lot of insurance premiums, is this commercial insurance? What type of insurance is so expensive? Well, they do commercial buildings, large large buildings and uh, high-risk environments. And the employees, um, you know, they're, they're in risky scenarios. And they do take all the precautions uh, required to be keep the employees safe. OSHA rules and all that. But every once in a while, accidents happen. We're talking hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in premiums and in insurance here. Uh, well, this company is not quite that big, but on the whole, they are in the industry. Yes, um, this is a thirty-five million dollar revenue business. Uh, their their insurance premiums are in a couple of million range, uh, and that 
currently, but a year and a half ago, they went, they doubled almost to three, they went to three and a half million uh, because of an accident and a, and a lawsuit. And the insurance companies raised their premium to cover that risk. And uh, now they're working back to uh, getting their premiums reduced. So they're willing to go back to the market. But what I was starting to say, I had an offer years ago, about three years ago, and they, they thought the business was worth more than the offer. So just for clarification here, we have a founder that started this company about 35 years ago, 35 years ago. And he brought in a couple of other partners. And is he the majority? Or are they all equal? They're close to being equal. He's the founder. So he has the, the primary say, but they do everything very collegial. They, they vote on things and, um, and two out of three sometimes works, but they'll make sure that everybody has a say. You started this process five years ago. So now you actually have had interest up to this point in time. A couple, three years ago, you tested the waters, I guess, and had some interest in people buying the company. And they decided, I guess, not to proceed at that time. Yes, they wanted more and they weren't, weren't ready mentally. This is back to the mental issue. Uh, they didn't know what else they'd be doing. And they were if they're now early 60s, back then they were in the late 50s. So there's a big d- difference when you get into the 60s, at least. When the uh, insurance premiums jumped, they basically, the business became unsellable. Um, the profitability of the business impacts the, the value. And they turned out a bus- uh, an offer when the value, when the profit was higher. Now that the profits are impacted by uh, increased in insurance costs, they couldn't sell in their mind. They just had to Wait it out. Wait till insurance premiums get reduced by having a number of years of, of no accidents and no claims. Uh, so they're there. So they waited a couple of three years and had a good track record. And so eventually the insurance premiums subsided and went down to what their historical level was, I guess, right? Yes. There's a little bit of intricacy here. The offer that they're getting includes a self-insurance component, which reduces the uh, insurance costs to the buyer. So effectively, the implicit insurance premium is lower to the buyer. So that becomes factored into the price. Um, so the buyers come forward with an offer of uh, 50 million for this business and they wanted 70 and they were ready to turn it down. And I reminded them, we've been down this road, we worked at it for five years already. We had an issue. Do you really want to go and get zero if, if this uh, buyer doesn't want to offer more than 50? So your choice is 50 or zero, not 70. That's not in. That's not on the table. So they had their little in-house meeting. And I know one of the three was uh, res- reluctant because he still had a number of years he was con- willing to work. The other two, uh, some personal issues occurred that they were at a, a position now that in their minds they were ready. So they accepted that offer and we're now going through d- due diligence and it's expected to close around August. So uh, for five years of effort, it went to, to nothing for a while, and now it's back. So you've rode this horse for a long time, and you said it was getting ready, and it looked like things were moving toward the closing. And as you've now spent so much time with these folks and uh, have gone through several iterations of offers, and they've considered the value, and you've had some ups and downs during the period of time that they've been looking to position that business for exit, and you got them to the point now where I guess emotionally, we talked just in our last little story here, that they have themselves ready now for an exit. Not only the business, but they've gotten themselves ready. And externally, what is also helping a little is the potential for tax increase on capital gains. 
So if they can sell this year, they could save themselves a lot of money. So that's also a motivation. That's a good point to make here is that things change. I mean, you have some dynamics going on here with the business. You've had this unexpected event of a a lawsuit and an injury on the job that jacked their insurance premiums up, their liability insurance premiums up. I think you said a million and a half dollars. With a multiple you're looking at, that's a multi-million dollar hit on valuation. And that just happens in a, someone slipping and falling very quickly to have millions of dollars evaporate. And basically, they were thinking they wanted to hold out for a higher value and get more chips, take more chips off of the table. But what would be the big takeaway here for our audience? Similar to the first story, you have to make yourselves ready, in this case, three people. And when you are ready, you should proceed to go to the market and find out if you can find a buyer. And if you do, make take the offer. Because you're, you can't expect that some, there's another one out there that's going to give a better offer and that nothing's going to happen in the meantime. Well, I think that nothing is going to happen in the meantime is really critical here. There is the unpredictability of things dramatically changing in any business out there. And so I think if we were to capsulize a takeaway here, I would say that you never know what is going to impact and dramatically change the value of your business. And you have a story here of entrepreneurs that experienced that firsthand when millions of dollars of value disappeared because of an accident. And that when they wanted to actually hold out for more, you said that sales price of the business was 50 million. They wanted more than that, but you were able to get them to realize that they don't really want to be penny wise and pound foolish. And especially with the other dynamics that are going on in the market with tax law with capital gains uh, potentially changing in the future, that'll have a dramatic impact what they end up putting in their pocket and that they decided now was the right time to move on. So the takeaway is there is uncertainty out there. So if you have a solid offer that looks like a buyer that can take over the business, sometimes it's better not to try to squeeze the last dollar or two out of the business and take the offer that you have. Is that a fair assessment, Paul? It is a fair assessment. Um, and, and, and this is a bigger company, but in in many of the smaller market uh, companies, you don't know if there ever will be a second buyer. And to to assume that uh, I won't take this offer because I can find a better offer later, that's not always true. So uh, you have to look the gift horse in the mouth and and, and decide if, if this is going to be a, a good deal for you, not trying to get the next deal. It's this deal, the one that makes sense. Yeah, we've all had situations. I'm sure everyone listening here today has had situations where they wish they would have taken an offer or a deal or something, hired the person because they just thought they could have the next deal or person or transaction that was going to be better. And it just wasn't. They wish they would have taken what was there at the time. And that, that's a good takeaway from that story. And especially when you've worked a lifetime to build something and you have something that is really solid and gives you a good return. Don't don't be penny wise and pound foolish. Exactly. So let's move on. You've been doing this for a number of years, Paul. So let's move over to a transaction that didn't have as many challenges and maybe a deal that wasn't a $50 million deal, but was something more along the smaller end of the spectrum here and how that kind of turned out. There's a couple that I can bring up. But I'll start with one that was pretty clean and simple. It's a good contrast to these other two. And uh, it's a, a waste hauling company, uh, heavy-duty equipment, big big trucks. I don't even know the manufacturer, probably Mac. Um, half a million-dollar 
trucks and and, uh, dumpsters and other containers that uh, they acquired to uh, for people to uh, uh, put their waste in. It was it's not a a municipal garbage collecting, but more of a commercial endeavor where they um, had relationships with building contractors who would have waste from construction sites, uh, commercial sites. So this is like the big dumpsters that are dropped off and they fill it up with wood and exactly cement and everything else. Exactly. And uh, they had many relationships in the Philadelphia marketplace. Who were these folks? Did they start the business? Uh, they started from scratch. Uh, this is uh, These were a Russian immigrant family, or not family, but a group um, that uh, had the idea that they could, this is a business they could get started with just putting some capital together. It's not extremely difficult uh, mentally to run a a, a company like that they had to just have the re- resources so they started with a truck and they grew it and over i think it's like a 20 year period they grew it to a, a, a rather big operation a couple million dollars a year so I, I have to ask the question here paul you know this was in what city was this located uh, philadelphia and so philadelphia so I'm, I'm not trying to draw general categorizations here but they're in the waste construction industry and If you watch TV or movies and construction business in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, wherever, the East Coast cities, big cities, is that it's a pretty tough business. Sometimes a lot of shady characters in the business, maybe a touch of organized crime in it. So I'm just curious, is that anything like what we're talking about here? No, not really. Uh, I I don't suspect there's any organized crime any longer. Uh, It is a tough business. These are hardworking people. They uh, they know how to drive a hard bargain and and they work a lot of hours. But uh, you know, especially if they're if they're an intermediate community where there are lots of connections, they help each other. The uh, the drivers are also Russian, so they there was a, a tight knit group of employees. So these were just immigrants that started with nothing. They worked hard. Yeah, they were able to build a business over a period of years, and it sounds like they built it up to a fairly good sized business and. It's really equipment intensive. I mean, you're talking about all those dumpsters and trucks and very intensive. That can get into a lot of equipment and maintenance and debt to finance that. Well, the interesting thing is, in the office, they had two two employees: a dispatcher who was on the radio with the truck drivers, and a CFO. And the CFO oversaw all the the you know collections and payments and financing the vehicles and all the the, the money part of the business. And oversaw this other business they started, which was an ambulance service, uh, private ambulances. And that was growing fast. Okay. We're shifting gears here. So out of their same office, they started another business. It was a commercial ambulance business. And that became a bigger deal. They were making more money in ambulances than they were in waste hauling. So that's why they hired me to sell the assets of the waste hauling so they could concentrate on the ambulance business. So were they actually selling the operating business or just the assets of the business? Well, the, they sold all of the assets, which included some uh, intangibles like the client relationships, uh, which was minimal compared to the value of the hard assets. So it was a it was a uh, very much a hard asset business. And what I did was I found another uh, waste hauling company who uh, actually was in Newark, New Jersey, not that far, but maybe 75 miles away. And they saw the opportunity to... Uh, grow strategically into the Philadelphia market. So they bought all the assets, hired the uh, dispatcher, and they took over that business. And there was a clean sale. They were a big enough business. They didn't have to go to bank to get financing. They had their own attorney. 
and it was done in, in short order. It was a real nice transaction. And so the real motivation is that the business wasn't struggling. They weren't getting close to retirement like we often talk about on the podcast. These are just innovative, hard-knuckle entrepreneurs that saw an opportunity and started another business that ended up being a lot more profitable than the business they were in. So that was the driving force in selling it. Exactly. And so the big takeaway here is that you were talking about how smooth that this transaction went and that smoothness is driven by you were able to find a strategic buyer that wanted into this market. And just out of curiosity, were they able to pay up a little bit because they wanted to get into the market? They offered a fair price, maybe even a little bit higher price than you would normally get? Well, I call it a fair price. But you know, when you're dealing with hard assets like trucks, you can get a good uh, valuation on that on, on what was sold. What If you go to a place where these trucks are being resold, you, can, you know what the market value is. So you can put a price together that's based on the market value of the assets in, in, an, in an open marketplace because this is not – in other businesses, the assets are hard to value. In this business, the asset is pretty easy to value. So I guess the big takeaway here is that you're talking about assets that are very predictable. It is an intangible where you have to do a lot of calculations on valuations that can be challenged and negotiated and because of the type of assets. They're very marketable. They're very easy to identify. And since there was no bank financing involved, it went very smooth. So from the time this transaction went to the letter of intent stage to the actual closing, was this six months, four months? Two months, what? Oh, 60 days. 60 days. It was easy. All right. So the big takeaway here is, I guess, if you have assets that are easily valued and you have a strategic buyer that understands the value of the assets, a closing can go very quickly. Correct. Correct. It took a while to find the buyer, though. I had to go and strip. You know, initially, I was looking at other uh, wayselling companies in the Philadelphia area, but they viewed the opportunity as, well, I could grow in this neighborhood by just going after the clients that they had. So I could push them out of the way in their own environment. If I go 75 miles away, they had to leapfrog into the market, and, comp- and and that's what the advantage was. Well, that's also an insight. Someone wanting to enter the market has a different perception of value than someone that's around the corner. All right, well, let's jump to something else and chat a little bit about another transaction that had an interesting outcome for our audience here today. This business is um, a New York City sign manufacturer, interior signs. So. Uh, and, and it's mostly retail, although uh, I guess NYU, New York University is uh, not quite retail, but uh, that was one of the biggest clients. Describe to me a little bit about the founders, if you can, and a little bit about the type of signs you're talking about here. I'm having a little hard time really visualizing what they did. The funny thing is that it's, it's like something that everybody sees every day. The, the, the owner started the business out of college, literally making signs by hand. He was a graphic artist. He uh, grew the business by adding various kinds of signs, uh, signs that are made in plastic, embossed, uh, metal signs, and you, uh, everything from the men's room and women's room door to uh, a sign, a flag sign hanging on a pole outside uh, New York University to an interior sign in a uh, uh, Panera bread, where it would have pictures of the bread uh, that you could buy, and they would and Panera would have multiple locations in New York, so they would he would have a sign they liked, they would put, put it in all locations, so that would give them a, a, a client that would have a, a bigger reach. Uh, he did he did whatever they needed, it was all custom, um, 
There was, this was not a transaction that you sold something over the internet. So it was all custom work. You're really saying is you just can't go on the internet and order. I mean, it's all custom and it has to be designed for specific building or type of business, high touch business, high, highly customizable. And you said he started in college? He was right out of college. So he, yeah. He didn't have a job. He came out. And he, he, like I said, he's a graphic designer, I guess you'd call it. Uh, he, he wanted to make his own, do his own thing. And uh, he started making signs for people. So how old was he in ballpark years when he was looking at exiting here? Uh, early 60s. Oh, wow. He'd, he'd been in this business a long time. A long time, yeah. And in and, and New York City, multiple. Uh, and, and work in New York City, especially in a, in a manufacturing business, because you still need space. Um, he had to find special buildings that had an open floor and big enough space, uh, elevators to take the uh, the bigger signs out. That he was making because some of them were six foot and six by four or whatever, so they were uh, they were big stuff. Um, and when he approached me, actually, I got I got to know him a, a little diverged quickly uh, through one of my uh, connections who was an attorney. It's his brother in law, and as he said to me, my friend said to me, my brother in law has uh, prostate cancer and he needs a cell. Can you help him? Oh, so that was a driver. He had a health issue here. Exactly. And he was uh, worrying about how he would continue the business. He was going through the chemo treatments. As I said to him, I said, you know, when you reach this stage, you're not the only thing that's sick here. Your business is going to be sick if we don't move quickly. And he came to me with his idea was, let me get the best offer, but I want to take the first offer. So uh, that's my mission. I had to go find him something that he could quickly sell the business uh, he did so, and he moved to Florida, and he's trying, and he's doing well now. Tell me a little bit about that process. You had to go find a buyer, and this is a unique type of business. Were you looking at other interior sign companies? Tell me a little bit about that process of how you went out and tried to identify a buyer that would see the value. Absolutely. Um, this is normally what we do. Uh, most of our transactions are related to uh, what we call strategic, another business in the same industry or related industry. So in this case, I went after other sign companies, and I built a list, uh, primarily using the internet tools, Google, and other search methods. Um, I got my list. I started contacting them, sent them where I could get an email address. I sent them emails with a, a, a brief description of my business, a little teaser or flyer or whatever you want to call it. Um, I called them when I got their phone numbers. I talked to them about the opportunity the, to make an acquisition and why this business is, is a, a prime opportunity. Um, I had got to the point where I had three people interested enough to start a conversation. Um, some of my outreach was uh, my, the, con the businesses I, I uh, contacted were as many as a hundred miles away. I went all the way down to the Philadelphia area thinking that, you, you know, it's an, it's an, a market that's nearby Philadelphia, New York. There's a, uh, a, a rail line and a turnpike so you can get back and forth. So is that maybe somebody would even consider that, uh, turns out that, um, I found the buyer who makes exterior signs, the ones that are you see lighted with, uh, it used to be neon, but now they have LED and other methods of uh, signage that, uh, that you see outdoors that you see the signs. Um, he, his offices were like three blocks away. So I looked 100 miles away and found the buyer three, three blocks away. <laughs> Seems like that's always the case, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Uh, it was a perfect uh, add-on scenario. Uh, having an exterior science, he could buy into the exterior interior business, bring on that the uh, the talent because the owner, uh, my client, had 
it, people doing the signs now. He wasn't the maker anymore, but he had many of the relationships of the business. And he, so uh, a lot of that manufacturing talent went over to the, the buyer. Um, they're continuing to this day, doing very well. Um, and uh, the, uh, my, my client uh, was happy to get, a, get an offer and he took the first offer he got. He didn't wait for, uh, uh, to see if there's anything better around the corner. Um, but it, ter- it turned out well for him. He's, he's, he was, I, almost, I almost argued against taking the first offer because I thought he could get more. Well, that's an interesting set of circumstances here where you have a buyer that sort of gets it, knows that he has an issue here, and he positions himself to hook up with the right advisor. They can go out and roll up their sleeves and bring the right types of buyers to the table. And we have a situation here where you felt that well, he probably could have gotten 10 to 15% more for his business, but he really understood that, as we talked about in our, our other story here a little bit earlier today, is that he wasn't going to be penny-wise and pound-foolish. He saw what he had, and it was a fair offer. Probably could have gotten a little bit more, but he took the offer on the table, and because there were other factors that were more important to him than what he was actually going to put in the bank at end of closing. And you made a comment here that I want to emphasize. You said, if you get sick, if you're an entrepreneur that's running the business and you get sick, your business is going to get sick too, or there's a high probability of that. Especially if you're in, in so many areas of the business. In some companies we work with, the owners, have, they understand that and they start making the business independent of them where they have key people doing most of the work and all they're doing is overseeing and they're not needing to be there every day of the week, that business, if you get sick, they don't even know you're not there. They'll come see you in the hospital if they need to, but you don't have to be there. When you're in a, in a business where you're running everything through you, and it can be everything from the, the key client relationships to uh, making all the uh, decisions on uh, buying and selling, you know, what, what's, what authorities you, ha- you give people, um, and just the overall uh, strategy of the business. If you don't delegate some of that, then when you get sick, your business gets sick. I would say in, in reflection through my own experience and in talking to so many advisors like yourself and understanding the hundreds and thousands of stories that we've chatted about here on the podcast that if the owner does get sick, it's just a matter of scale. It's kind of a, a sliding continuum for the person that's highly involved and the owner gets really sick, the business is going to get really sick. And then on the other end of the continuum, when the owner has a good management team around him, if he gets sick, it has a lot less impact, but it has an impact. And so I just think that you need to understand that and position your business to be as minimally affected if something happens to you or some of your key people even, that you can minimize that impact. And so that's a really great takeaway. Again, I think we have two stories here talking about Pennywise and Pound Foolish. And in this particular situation, we had the owner understanding that he took the fair offer, realizing he could have gotten more, but he was more focused on closing the deal because by not closing it, it could have had far, far reaching consequences. In our earlier story, I had an offer to the table and they wanted more. And the first time around, they didn't take it and they held out. So 
These have been fascinating stories, Paul. In your situation here, we're talking about businesses that were sold for $50 million or will soon close at $50 million down to much, much smaller transactions where the owner was individually involved in the business. So you've brought an interesting perspective here of different levels and businesses, some great takeaways here today. If someone wanted to reach out and talk to you here and get a hold of you about their specific situation or just to ask a question, what would be the best way for them to reach out and chat with you. Thank you. Uh, First of all, my phone number is 267-535-2551. Or my email address is paul at stonyhilladvisors.com. And Stony is S-T-O-N-Y. No E in there. Sometimes people call me and say, I can't send you an email. Do you have an Ian Stoney? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. All right. Well, thank you. Wrapping up another podcast issue here. We've talked about a lot of interesting transactions and some great takeaways. And so this is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.